like Brian said, part of my training is uh, getting to the opportunity to preach to you guys. Uh, and I am grateful for that opportunity from Brian in the session and grateful to you all for your graciousness and patience. This is my first. For the past couple months, Brian has been teaching from the book of Luke. The New Testament Gospels are the account of what Jesus did during his time here on earth and how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection was a culmination of God's covenant promises to Israel. Those covenant promises are instituted in the Old Testament. And this morning, we're going to open the Old Testament and see how God's plan for redemptive history was always pointing to Jesus. Now, each week, we are guided through a service of worship by a liturgy. This detailed order of events manages our time and focus, and it's no mistake that half of the service is spent listening to a sermon from God's Word. That is, uh, excuse me, God's Word is written, or God's written Word is one of the few ways by which we are to learn, worship, and know our God, and that's why we devote half of our time to that. Our passage this morning comes from Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book in the Bible written by Moses. This book is primarily concerned with laying out the responsibilities of the priests and the nation of Israel, and it's all according to God. This book is Israel's worship guide, the detailed order of events, but it is far more weighty than this worship guide that we hold this morning. I mean that both figuratively and literally. Let's turn our attention to the reading of God's Word. You can follow along in your own copy of Scripture or in the passage that's printed there in the bulletin. This is God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bowl of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him. And the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the Thummim, and he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and all that was in it and consecrated them. And he sprinkled some of it on the altar seven times and anointed the altar and all its utensils and the basin and its stand to consecrate them. And he poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. And Moses brought Aaron's sons and clothed them with coats and tied sashes around their waist and bound caps on them as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's stop here for a moment. I've cut out a few verses this morning uh, that talk about the animal sacrifice. I've mostly cut them out for the sake of time and breadth of topic. I'll return and give you a brief uh, Sparks Note version of that when we get there. Onward. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments. 
and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments and his sons and his sons' garments with him. And Moses said to Aaron and his sons, Boil the flesh at the, tent, the entrance of the tent of meeting, and there eat it, and the bread that is in this basket of ordination offerings, as I commanded, saying, Aaron and his sons shall eat it. And what remains of the flesh and the bread you shall burn up with fire, and you shall not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting for seven days, until the days of your ordination are complete, for it will take seven days to ordain you. As has been today, the Lord has commanded to be done to make atonement for you. At the entrance of the tent of meeting, you shall remain day and night for seven days, performing what the Lord has charged, so that you do not die. For so I have been commanded. And Aaron and his sons did all the things that the Lord commanded by Moses. Let's pray. Father God, your word is truth. Focus our minds, guide our heart, and teach us by your word. Amen. Well, as a newcomer to delivering sermons, I don't think it's in my best interest to deliver the punchline right at the beginning, but I would like you guys to hear this message through the lens that I'm about to give you. Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection serves as the ultimate priest and sacrifice for an unholy people. The whole Bible orbits around the need for salvation and deliverance. It's Jesus, not us. The Apostle Paul writes that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were not close enough or pretty good. We were Christ's enemies. In the Bible, repetition is a common tool to draw attention to the important things and I'm going to teach you a little chorus for this morning's message. It's God is holy, we are not, only he can make us holy. This morning I'll be taking us through the passage by looking at these three things, for those of you who like to take notes. It's a gracious sacrifice, a holy priesthood, and the way. First, a gracious sacrifice. In terms of historical context, God has just recently freed Israel from 400 years of slavery in Egypt. This book, Leviticus, begins with the words, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. God is relaying to Moses how it is that Israel may commune with God throughout this whole book. And as you can see from our passage, he uses great detail, repetitive detail. The ordination of Aaron and his sons is just one of many examples from this book where Moses records the details and the process by which an unholy Israel can commune with a holy God. Have you ever read Leviticus 8 before and thought, haven't I read this before? You'd be right! Turns out this is a copy of Exodus 29, when God first brought this to Moses. What's added here is the repeated refrain, refrain, as the Lord commanded Moses. Remember what I said about the repetition in the chorus. It, it emphasizes the importance, and that is what we're supposed to see here. 
There are so many details. Details about the animals, about the uniforms, about the time requirements. All of these details should cue our mind and think that this must be a pretty big deal. The three animal sacrifices that we skipped over uh, in 14 to 29, um, I'd like to talk about those. Um, God institutes animal sacrifice to provide substitutionary atonement for sin. In Genesis 2, Adam and, God tells Adam and Eve that the cost for taking the fruit would be death. God set the precedent from the beginning. But the sacrificial system is a way of God, is the way of God maintaining justice while extending his grace to a sinful nation of Israel. Animal sacrifices in this time period were not uncommon. However, other ancient Near Eastern religions offered sacrifices to their gods, lowercase g, uh, simply to feed and to appease. Our God gives Israel the opportunity to do sacrifice so that they can draw near to him. The book of Leviticus describes five different sacrifices, and this morning I'll describe the three that are found in this ordination ceremony. A bull is offered for the sin offering. This is also known as a purification offering. And during this offering, the most expensive animal is offered first, and it's to purify the worship elements. We saw some of the anointing oil being sprinkled. Uh, similarly, the blood of the bull gets, gets sprinkled onto the altar and its elements to purify it for worship. Next, a ram is offered for the guilt offering. This one atones for the sinfulness of the priests who are coming. Just like the worship elements need to be consecrated, so do the priests who are going to be performing the acts of worship. And finally, there's another ram that is offered during the, and this is the ordination offering. It's a type of fellowship offering. This one includes partaking of what God generously gives us. They share the meal of this ram together. And this points to the vertical relationship to God, as well as the horizontal relationship to one another. Okay, that's all for animal sacrifices. Back to our details. So here's a classic example of following and paying attention to details. Uh, Some of you may be further removed from your school days, but I think you'll remember this. Have you ever walked into class and received a test where it tells you to do all sorts of things, starting with read the exam, walk to the front of the room, clap your hands to shave in a haircut, wave to a friend, only to find that the last prompt says only do steps one two, and eight, and sit down and quietly wait for instructions. This points out, this this type of test points out the importance of following instructions. Now when it comes to Leviticus, God is not pulling a gotcha moment on Israel, but in order to bridge our unholiness to his holiness, God must provide a specific and detailed way for us to follow. In a nearby passage, we get a glimpse of what happens when Moses receives instructions from God and he puts his own spin on it. Numbers 20 is the story of Moses and the water from the rock. Do you know this one? I'll read a couple excerpts from it so we can get the idea. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff, assemble the congregation, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. 
So Moses took the staff, gathered the assembly, good, and struck the rock with his staff twice. He disobeyed. Moses loses the privilege of entering the promised land for this lack of obedience and pride. Doesn't that seem a little harsh? But remember, it's God who, in the first place, makes a way for his people to be with them. It's God's grace that Moses was even in the opportunity, even in a position to draw water from the rock there in the wilderness. These commands are important because God made them. Here's a summary of this gracious sacrifice God provides for Israel to give back to him. The Lord commands Moses. In this 20-verse passage that we read, there were over 50 action items on what is to be done for ordination, and we didn't even read about the animal sacrifices. Uh, excuse me. God wants Israel to follow his instructions. Next, a cost must be paid to purify. Remember, God is holy, we are not. In order to be made holy, bulls and rams had to be sacrificed throughout the seven-day ceremony. Can you imagine if us at Boise Prez had to smash one of our Subarus every time we wanted to come to worship? All joking aside, God required Israel to front a cost. We should get a sense of what a big deal sin is. What should this show us about God, though? That there's grace. God's plan for redemptive history tunes our heart to the need for purification. Adam and Eve, they felt shame after they took the fruit. They were the first ones to experience the void between their unholiness and God's holiness. Even then, God covered them with animal skin. Some consider this to be the first animal sacrifice. In the Garden of Eden, there was a cost for mankind to be able to approach God. Frankly, the sacrifices from Israel to God are just a sign of obedience. There's not some cosmic power that actually atones for Israel's sins through the blood of animals. God graciously enters into relationship with them by making this way. But it was never meant to stay this way. Flipping to the New Testament, listen to what the author of Hebrews says. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, it can never make perfect those who draw near, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take sin away. God is holy, and we are not. Only he can make us holy. Let's turn our attention to those who are called to offer these sacrifices. In our passage, Aaron and his sons are chosen to serve as priests. It's important to note here that God ordains Aaron as Israel's top representative and intercessor to the most holy God. When you think about it, does any event in Israel's recent history make you think he might be disqualified for such a high position? Israel and the Golden Calf, starring Aaron from Levi. In short, 
In short, Aaron is far from perfect. He might seem like the least likely guy to take such an important role. But he doesn't take the role, does he? God calls him to the role. I want you to notice the type of language that's used in our passage around Aaron and his sons. Everything is done to them. The clothes are put onto them. The oil is sprinkled on them. Everything's done to them. God, by Moses' hand, initiates this ordination. It works the same way for us. And if no one has told you this yet, let me be the first to tell you, God uses the imperfect throughout the whole Bible and still does today. God contrasts his holiness against our unholiness and inability. This disparity should show us that we need him and cause us to give thanks because we have him. God is holy. We are not. Only he can make us holy. I have a question for you. Where do we see uniforms? What does uniform imply? Well, uniforms are worn by representatives of something greater. Their outfit sets them apart and bestows on them the authority of the one they represent. And furthermore, someone in uniform stands out from others who are around them and not in uniform. Being holy is quite literally being set apart, right? We learned that in Sunday school. The design of the tabernacle and the order of ceremonies symbolically separate the unholy from the holy. In the same way that Israel is set apart from the Levites, and the tribe of Levi is set apart from Aaron and his sons, and even Aaron is set apart from his sons, as he'll be the high priest, there is there's a hierarchy of these of holiness from, from the least to the most holy. But I want to stress the fact that the only thing that Israel, the tribe of Levi, Aaron, his sons, or even us for that matter, the only thing that we have is that we're called by God. God graciously identifies Israel as his own and makes a way to dwell among them. During the ceremony we read in our pas- about in our passage, the priests receive anointing oil and sacrificial blood The costliness and tangibility of these signs remind us how much is to be spent to make these individuals holy. Because God is holy, we are not. On this side of the cross, we're called to be a holy priesthood. As Dirk read this morning from 1 Peter, I'm going to read verse 9 again if you want to follow along on your bulletin. It says, But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Did you see that there? A people for his own possession. We're God's people, and it's simply because he chose us. Here's what Peter was not saying when he said a holy priesthood. We're not being told to put on uniforms and lord our religion over others who don't have our uniform. We're not called to priestly sacrifice in order to commune with God our Father. We're not called to a hermit-like devotion where nothing about us is important and all we do is practice Old Testament rituals and laws. 
Rather, we're called to represent and imitate the one who became our ultimate sacrifice and priest. So let's talk about Jesus. I told you from the beginning it was going to come back to Jesus. Of all the Old Testament books, Leviticus might be the most overlooked for how much it points straight to Jesus. The entire book is about worshiping God and living with God. Both are only possible through the intercession of priests who perform daily sacrifices. Remember, Moses wasn't just trying things out. God gave him word-for-word instructions. God made a way. It was not permanent or complete. In fact, this ordination ceremony from Leviticus had to be repeated. Even if the same priest was to stay in service, it had to be ordained, he had to be reordained each and every year. He had to be reconsecrated. And why was that? Because God is holy and we are not. But what happens when Jesus comes? This comes from Hebrews again. It says, with Christ's sacrifice, the sacrificial system becomes unnecessary. So what did the sacrificial system accomplish anyway? It was the way that God provided to purify Israel so they could draw near. So what does that mean for us today? God is holy. We were not. But Jesus imputes his holiness to us. So now in Christ, God is holy and we are holy. The blood of bulls and lambs could not do what Jesus' life, death, and resurrection did, and they were never meant to. With Israel, God made a way, and in Christ, we now look to the only way. In the Gospel of John, it says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father. No one passes from unholy to holy except through me. That's Jesus. Jesus is the perfect sacrifice who needed no purification in order to offer payment for our sins. One of the books I studied in preparation for this message is written by an RTS professor named Mike McKelvey. It's a little lengthy, but I really love the way that he summarizes the value of the book of Leviticus. The laws of Leviticus were not an end unto themselves, but a pointer and tutor to Christ. Where Israel failed to obey, the Son of God has come and fulfilled the law of God. Jesus stands as both the perfect once-for-all sacrifice for sin and the high priest for his people. So while the reader finds himself at times wondering about the application and relevance of the book of Leviticus, he need only look to the New Testament and see that the gospel reveals the book's end goal. In other words, Leviticus provides the foundation for understanding the gospel, the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, the work of Christ as priest, and the purpose of Christ to sanctify or make holy his people. So now that we're sanctified in Christ, what do we do? Remember that God is holy and we are not. We must trust in God's promises as we obey his commands. There's no acing this test and there's no trying harder. 
Ironically, we get to the end of a sermon that's chock full of details, full of commands and actions, but all we're told to do is rest. Rest in God's promises. Rest in Jesus. Rest in God's grace. Rest in knowing that the God we worship is holy. Rest in knowing that Christ Jesus died on the cross to make us holy. Let's pray. Holy God, thank you. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for sending your Son to purify us. Thank you for drawing near to us. Amen.